top-level officials that have actually adopted regulations to deal with this in hard legal and financial terms. The sea level rise factor in coming climate chaos is not just about a few polar bears, but is extremely and increasingly relevant to at least half of humanity. So if you're that half, listen up. We will have an interview with Will Travis, who is a, a very big part of the Bay Area planning process, understanding exactly how sea level rise will affect planning cities, buildings, airports, and uh, livelihoods all around um, the world, not just the Bay Area. So we'll be talking with him in just a few minutes. Uh, we'll give you a little bit of news first, and we will tell you that you can reach us and ask our guests questions in real time one of two ways. You can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. You can also Facebook us by simply going on to where we're live and putting in one of your comments into the window there, and we will read it, uh, if we can, live on the air. So thanks so much for your participation. And, Joe, you wanted to start out with a news snippet. Yeah. Before I do that, though, I'll point our X number of viewers who are actually watching us on our, what is it, YouTube and Facebook Live, maybe video feeds, which you can watch either live and or recorded later. And uh, a quarter of what's on the screen right now, besides our shining visages sitting here in the studio, is the ocean right next to this studio. And you can see it's one of the few foggy days we've been broadcasting. Uh, quite a bit of fog out there on the East Cliff area of Santa Cruz. And uh, I can actually see the sea level rising as I watch right now. And you can do that too. Okay, but that, that's, that's old uh, and continuing news. Here's the new news that is literally hot off the press. I just got this like an hour ago from a good friend of mine, an excellent former student at Cabrillo College where I teach uh, renewable energy from time to time. And this is out of Australia. A fellow named Paul Dastour, D-A-S-T-O-O-R, heads up a lab at the University of Newcastle, and they are now demonstrating uh, areas on the order of many square, hundreds, thousands of square meters of printed solar photovoltaic material. And uh, it's just a matter of time before this becomes square kilometers and is economic. I haven't been able to find out yet how efficient the stuff is, but if it's printed, I imagine it's quite inefficient. However, if you consider the efficiency of the most effective solar energy gathering system in the world, namely photosynthesis, guess how efficient that is? It's about one or two percent. That's all that plants use of the abundant solar energy falling upon them. This stuff is probably down in the low single digits too. However, it's going to be so cheap. It's amazingly cheap. And if it's practical to actually scale this up to commercial uh, you know, production, this is going to be pretty exciting and important. Of course, it does raise a, raise a trade-off. Do, uh, do you want to... Uh, let's see, is my voice still on here? Uh, yeah, okay. Do you want to uh, cover the land with photovoltaic material that is very inefficient, even if cheap? Or do you want to save that land for uh, material that's much more efficient, even if more expensive? Now, of course, land, well, how about rooftops? <laughs> how about rooftops that you cannot put conventional solar cells on? If we can put this printed stuff on there, then that's, that's some real, we're talking. <laughs> so anyways, stay tuned on that. Great. Wow. Sounds like good news for everybody from the solar front and affordability as well. One thing I noticed as my interns gather stories for your newscast is two of them have an oops factor. So let's hear what the oops factor is. See if you can tell some commonalities, very different stories about completely different science being done 
um, a lot of times people want science to be infallible. It's not. It's a process. Uh, it's not something that we are permanently certain. Some things are settled, you know, gravity and things like that, even though we're learning more about it as we speak. Um, but there's methodologies that sometimes mess up and give us false readings, and that can have pretty big consequences to how we act about big things like sea level rise and uh, pollution. So let's hear some of those stories next. And Cade Apostelnik has this story for you. Africa is predicted to leapfrog over coal power and jump right to renewable energy. Africa is home to about 700 million people without an electricity source, which means governments must select the most efficient form of energy. With renewable energy on the fast track to surpass coal and cost effectiveness within the next 10, 15, 20 years, Options such as solar may prove to be the continent's most popular choice. In addition, a 2016 paper from the National Academy of Sciences looked at energy trends across the continent and discovered that in 21 countries, renewable energy sources could outpace the nation's electricity demands by 2030. However, obstacles such as cross-border cooperation and outdated electric in an outdated electrical grid may become a roadblock for the continent. Despite the challenges, if the study's predictions are correct, the end result would mean an extra billion people would be utilizing clean energy over coal. That's a neat story. Happy to hear it. Um, and that dovetails off of the interview we ran last week with uh, Bob Staten. It was completely off the grid. So I guess they're going that direction in, in that continent. Excellent. Wonderful, Excellent. wonderful news. <laughs> and Tommy has a story for you. This is a interesting one, I thought, especially for all you people who are stuck on Highway 17 right now. Yeah, it kind of relates to one of our other previous guests who was talking about transportation and how we need to transform how we commute. Um, this story is from Duke University. Uh, how much pollution are you inhaling on your daily commute? Researchers conducted the first study to use in-car sensing technology to measure pollutant exposure during rush hour traffic and found twice the harmful particulate matter inside cars than previously believed. The reactive molecules found in the cabin cause the body to produce chemicals which can lead to stress and even cell and DNA damage. While most studies have taken continuous 24-hour samples from sensors on the ground, this study attached measurement devices to the passenger seat of drivers' vehicles in morning rush hour traffic crawling through downtown Atlanta. The new sampling device designed for the experiment draws in air at a similar rate to the human lung to provide accurate levels of exposure. While factors such as speed and having windows rolled down varied, all samples found more risk in air exposure than previous studies. The chemicals and particulates produced in traffic have been linked to the development of many diseases, including respiratory, heart disease, cancer, and some neurodegenerative diseases. And you know that, uh, that brings up uh, an interesting little tidbit that folks who drive fossil-fueled cars should all keep in mind. Um, you know, if you're taking a trip of any length, turns out, uh, say an hour's drive, turns out m most or a very large percentage of the pollutants just the regular old in-your-face air pollution emitted on such a trip is in the first couple few miles while the car is warming up. Once it gets going and is warmed up, then it's still polluting, but not nearly as much per mile as in those first few miles. So interesting. I mean, it's not exactly related, but it, your story reminded me of it. So there you go. It's worth knowing. <laughs> All right. And now Caroline King has a story for you. Yes, I have a story relating to the topic that we are going to be discussing on the remainder of the show today. 
Um, a second look at satellite data collected over the last 24 years has revealed that sea level rise has been accelerating at a rate much faster than previously thought. An error in the calibration of a sensor on the first of several satellites was leading scientists to believe that sea level rise was leveling off or even declining. The inconsistencies between the satellite data and tide gauge data was first identified in 2015 by a group of scientists from New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. They discovered that the satellite altimetry measurements were too high during those first six years. The error in those early measurements distorted the long-term trend, masking a long-term increase in the rate of sea level rise. Adjusting the data to remove that error revealed that sea levels are indeed rising at faster rates each year. In 1993, sea levels rose at a rate of 1.8 millimeters per year. Today, the rate is 3.9 millimeters per year. If sea level rise continues to accelerate at the current rate, the world's oceans could rise by about 75 centimeters over the next century. Something rather whimsical that that reminds me of is in cosmology of all places, uh, it's only been fairly recently realized that the universe is apparently accelerating in its expansion. Part of the reason why that was only recently realized was uh, one of these similar kinds of uh, data calibration and observational issues that they had to get straightened out. And for a long time, it was thought that, yeah, it's expanding, but kind of at a constant rate. But it turns out, well, it's accelerating if we get the latest, greatest data on this. So anyway, um, but yeah, okay, it's bad news is what Carolyn was just telling us. And uh, Well, I think the take-home, too, is that machines are not infallible and our interpretation of their data are not infallible. And so we really need the best science possible to be able to make decisions. And that's a perfect segue into our guest who's with us here today because um, a lot of what he goes on when he helps communities and governments plan for sea level rise is data that, that tells us to some degree, and we can't be entirely sure, of course, because there's a lot of unknowns, how fast and how far uh, the sea will rise. Uh, that it is going to rise and that it is rising is not a debatable thing, how fast and where um, sometimes it is. But that's not what we're here really to discuss. What we're here to discuss is the how we as humans adapt to what is coming. What are the ways, because we are a solutions-based show, um, we can get ahead of the curve and do something as humans uh, that's Thinking ahead, just another, a tad. Another possible name we thought of for this show is, what do we do now? Or <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> so here we are. Run foo, the art of fleeing. <laughs> um, so I want to introduce our guest properly. Um, he has been on a number of shows about climate change, uh, including Climate One, which is a greatly respected public radio show. And we're very happy to have him on Planet Watch. Will Travis is a consultant, writer, teacher, and speaker on sea level rise adaptation. Throughout the decades, he has worked in the field of architecture, local planning, private consulting, advertising, and PR. From 73 to 1995, he served in a number of staff positions on the California Coastal Commission. In 1985, he was appointed Deputy Director of the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission, which is akin to a coastal commission for the San Francisco Bay Area. In 1995, he was Executive Director of that organization, and under his leadership in 2011, BD 
BCDC became the nation's first state coastal management agency to adopt development regulations for addressing sea level rise. He is now retired, and we're very lucky that he can speak his mind freely. And here he is with you right here on Planet Watch. Thank you for being here, Will. Thanks, Rachel. It's great to be here, Joe. So Your voice you. sounds great. The levels are perfect. So, hey, next half hour is going to be great. So okay. let's go right into the how. Um, here we are. You know, there's differing views on how fast and how far. But I asked you a question. I'll ask it again. I asked it on the phone when we were speaking earlier in the week. There's a lot of airports right next to the ocean, not, not to mention what percentage of the world's population. <laughs> so maybe we'll start there. What percentage of us are expected to experience the effects? Well, almost all of us who either live near the water, flush toilets, drink water, want to get to work, um, work at a place that is uh, near the ocean or near the bay. Uh, I think that the tendency is people look at the projections for sea level rise and they try to find some absolute number, which doesn't exist and then they look at where their house is and find that it's above that line and say it's not my problem um, we tend to focus so much on science but I got into this because I'm not a scientist it was a journalist that got me interested in this uh, I was running an agency that uh, was doing a sensational job of protecting San Francisco Bay and there were a series of articles in the New Yorker magazine by Elizabeth Colbert called the climate of man and she talked about how scientists were worried about as much as a meter of sea level rise by the end of the century. I went into my staff at BCDC, the GIS staff, I said, show me what San Francisco Bay would look like with a meter of sea level rise. The bay we see today is about a third smaller than it was when California became a state because the bay is shallow. Two-thirds of it is less than 12 feet deep. So much of the bay has been filled or reclaimed. San Francisco International Airport is on landfill. So is Oakland International Airport. So is downtown San Francisco. Silicon Valley is below sea level because of groundwater extraction back when Silicon Valley was called the Valley of Heart's Delight and it was fruit orchards. So what the map showed is that the bay would find its way back to that original shoreline because when the bay was filled, it was filled just high enough to get it above sea level, sea level of the past. So that's how we got into this whole issue. And we have now been working at BCDC and then subsequently in my continued work as I retired and trying to figure out how do we adapt to the inevitability of sea level rise, however fast and high it becomes? So what were your top three recommendations to uh, the, the good people of San Francisco or any of the landowners who might have been deeply affected if their property went underwater? Well, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that it's a real problem. And that, in fact, is what the regulations that BCDC adopted do. Uh, in most cases, 
people don't have to be concerned about sea level rise because nobody knows exactly what the impact will be. So that's the first thing. Be aware of the problem. The second thing is prepare for it. Uh, when you are or a government agency is evaluating a project along the shoreline to take that into consideration. When architects and planners are planning the project, knowing that it may last for a century, take that into account. So that's the second big thing. And the third thing, and the hardest thing to do, is to realize that for the past 8,000 years or so, the shoreline pretty much hasn't moved because our climate has been stable. Now with sea level rise, as the water rises, the shoreline will continue to move inland and upland. So the shoreline will forever forth into the future always be permanently temporary. So, okay. Uh, I think Rachel maybe was uh, aiming for, I mean, those are a great three general points to start with, but now, now I think we want to get into more brass tacks. What are the, some, some of the specific uh, recommendations and policy decisions that you and your colleagues have issued? Uh, and I realize there's, you know, papers and papers and reams of info on this, but what, what are some of the key things that come? One phrase that sticks with me from having talked to you was, uh, well, you got to consider the city kind of a uh, long-term temporary campground, and you got to be looking ahead to moving. It's kind of like pulling a trailer inland and uphill. we got to start thinking in terms of houses doing that, but what, t tell us some more of the specifics about how we prepare for this. Well, I use the term... Uh, long-term campground because I have jokingly found that the type of structure that is most resilient to sea level rise is the common travel trailer. You can put it right down at the shoreline and then as the tide comes in, you simply pull it uphill. You can continue to do that as the water rises. So rather than building permanent cities along the shoreline, just as we have campgrounds for those travel trailers, perhaps we can think of our future cities in, in much the same way. Now, clearly, I don't think we want all the great cities of the world to look like RV campgrounds. So it is, the question is, the challenge is finding new architectural types of building, perhaps that can be moved, perhaps that can float, perhaps that are designed for just a short period of time, like a, a World's Fair. You go to a World's Fair and it seems like it's been there forever and it'll be there forever. Well, it wasn't there six months ago and two years from now it won't be there. The purpose of a World's Fair, though, is actually to build all of the infrastructure that is below ground. The utilities, the sewers, the roads, the sidewalks, because after the World's Fair, there's usually permanent development that replaces it. So that metaphor doesn't quite work. So what I'm trying to do with my students is find new forms of construction, new forms of building that will make us capable of adapting to the inevitability of sea level rise. I can't help but struggle with the idea that that's perfect if you don't have anything there anymore. But what do we do with all the cities that are going to get flooded up to a certain level? Like the Trans End building 
in San Francisco, are we just going to abandon the first 10 floors of it and have a little pokey pyramid sticking up out of the ocean? It looks like Atlantis. I mean, there's also a huge amount of pollution. It depends on how fast this happens. But you can't just say goodbye to all of that architecture because it's going to pollute the ocean indelibly if we don't clear it out of the way. You can't just start over, right? There's nothing to move it to is the other problem except the Central Valley. <laughs> like, like, we're not talking about moving it to San Leandro because that's full too. So if we're Santa Cruz, the downtown's already built. We just go, we're moving to Mission Street, which is above the next plateau, you know. Well, you're certainly asking a lot of interesting questions about questions. specific areas <laughs> and specific buildings. And I think what we are going to have to do is ultimately answer all of those questions. But they can't be answered just yet. Uh, we are still looking for the forms of architecture. It is possible and i just finished reading a fascinating science fiction book that is more science than it is fiction and it's called new york 2140 and it is what new york will be like after two pulses of sea level rise and it the exact issue you raise uh, comes up in that book what about the buildings that are partially submerged Perhaps we can waterproof those lower floors. Perhaps we can recover some of them. Perhaps some of them will be abandoned. Uh, I think there will be different solutions at different places. But where we are right now is trying to envision those scenarios and trying to stretch our imaginations to move beyond where we still, I think, largely are as a society, and that is... The shoreline is permanent and t it is there forever and we will do everything we can to armor it and keep it where it is now. And that simply won't work. You're listening to Planet Watch. This is Will Travis, our guest. And if you'd like to send a query or a question or a comment, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. You're going to want to get in early on this because many of you will have questions. Joe. Yeah, as inspired by Will here, uh, I just kind of, I think, coined a new phrase. I'm not sure if it's ever been uttered before in human history, but I'm going to get it out here right now for posterity. You've heard of green building, right? I mean, I teach in the construction and energy management department over here at Cabrillo College. Green building, you know, renewable energy. But hey, blue building. You're talking about blue building. These new kinds of creative architectures that can deal with, you know, uh, water world. Uh, so uh, anyway, there you go. Uh, yeah. The ocean is a pretty hostile environment for just about any human endeavor. Um, it rusts things, you know, it, it whacks them with pretty big energy of waves. Um, some countries have managed to build dikes. Tell us about armoring and dikes. Is that not a good approach? I mean, Holland comes to mind? Well, I spent some time visiting with the Dutch and... Uh, they have for 800 years been holding back the sea and they've done an awfully good job at it but even they now acknowledge that they have to live with water and they are uh, moving into a new realm where they're incorporating water into their development we're going to take a very short break and be right back with will travis and more discussion of what to do as the sea rises stay, stay tuned, tuned. <laughs>
I'm Matt Thompson, Santa Cruz resident and project manager for Day One Solar. I find Santa Cruz to be such a unique place. You have community-minded residents that really appreciate the beauty that surrounds us. But with that comes a responsibility to protect our natural resources for generations to come. At Day One Solar, we offer clean energy systems that will save you money while you help save our planet. Solar Energy Now. Day One Solar. Hello, everyone. This is Meg from Ben Loman Market. In the meat department, we have hanging tenders at $7.99 a pound, porterhouse steaks, $12.49 a pound, top sirloin at $8.49 a pound, lamb shoulder chops, $7.49 a pound, center cut bone-in pork chops, $4.49 a pound, baby back ribs, $4.99 a pound, and sushi-grade ahi tuna at $9.99 a pound, and much, much more. Big Joe in Produce says he has cherries, yellow and white peaches, yellow and white nectarines, Black plums and red or green grapes, $1.99 a pound, and broccoli crowns at $0.99 cents a pound. In organic, he has yellow or white nectarines, yellow or white peaches, yellow or green grapes, and apricots, $2.99 a pound. And to switch it up, heirloom tomatoes at $3.99 a pound, just to name a few. So come on in and find sales going on throughout the store in every department. Sale lasts till closing on Tuesday the 25th with a new sales beginning on Wednesday. Thank you for shopping with us at Ben Lomond Market. back with Planet Watch and our guest Will Travis, an expert in sea level rise and city and government planning. He is talking with us about what can be done, what new structures and architecture and planning might actually help us move into a more livable environment as the sea rises. And uh, yeah, besides us, I was glad that Will brought the conversation, brought New York in there because this is not just a problem for the Bay Area, it's a problem all around this country and the world. And by the way, I think, and maybe Willie can correct me, if I was just to give a swag estimate, you know, somebody's wild-ass guess, for what percentage of the U.S. population lives within a pretty short distance of the ocean, it's got to be at least half, because you've got all those big cities around the edge, right? Do you, you happen to know that? As I recall, 55% of the American population lives within coastal counties. And it is something on the order of 34% that live right along the coastline. What Thanks. boggles me about that statistic is the most expensive real estate is right the first house with the That's ocean right. view. And so those people who have million trillion dollar homes along the California or New York coast are going to do what they can, I think, to protect their investment, which means seawalls, doesn't it? I mean, it, that's what's happening here. Armoring and big boulders put on the cliffs. To here's another reality. As you say, waterfront real estate is the most expensive real estate there is. Over time, and it may be a relatively short period of time, that real estate will be worth nothing or less than nothing. And this is already happening here in California. In Pacifica, there was a large, expensive uh, condominium and apartment development right on the bluff. And accelerated erosion ate away the bluff beneath it. The city officials had to condemn the building because it was not safe for human habitation. Then parts of the building began to fall onto the public beach below. 
The city officials ordered the building to be raised and removed. The owner was by this time bankrupt. So the building, the property that had been one of those investments that was sure to increase in value forever is now worth less than nothing. And that will continue to happen along the California coast, around the country, around the world. And insurance companies are not going to be too thrilled to uh, insure your house as it's precipitating over the cliff. And this brings up an exciting, if uh, kind of maddening question. Uh, we didn't talk about this. We had one other show, one or two other shows on sea level rise. But uh, in discussion since just out in the public, I've realized there's going to be a huge showdown between, you know, the people who live right in that most expensive, you know, beachfront view property and who a lot of them probably don't believe in government or they're not big fans of government. But as soon as their property gets seriously threatened, all of a sudden they're going to become big advocates of government funding. Like who is going to pay for shoring up these houses anyway? Who's going to pay for saving these beaches for the general public? Is it going to be my house versus the beach for the general public? Many times that is a direct conflict. If you save somebody's house, you sacrifice the beach near it. Well, let's so, talk about that yeah. because we're in a beach town and there's many beach towns uh, all around the world that rely on beaches as the main draw activity for bringing people in. And we are the probably one of the more famous surf spots as well as beach spots. And uh, all the traffic attests to that outside our window. Are the beaches inevitably going to go because of the speed of this? Is it just no beach or is it going to be, you know, cliffs and water? What are we going to see? Well, I think it will vary by area. If we try to armor the bluffs behind the beaches, uh, the rising sea level and the accelerated erosion will ultimately eat that beach away. It will also ultimately eat the protective bulkhead away. Uh, so that is not a long-term solution. But I think we should recognize that this is not a battle and a war between shoreline property owners and the rest of us. Uh, those shoreline property owners bought their property with a certain set of assumptions. One of those assumptions is the one we have all had, and that is that the shoreline doesn't move. Well, now we're finding it does. So I think trying to find an equitable approach that recognizes that they are not any more to blame for this problem than the rest of us and that we must share and should share in the cost of addressing it is an important step toward coming up with a, a resolution that will involve probably buying out some of those properties, some of the development uh, allowing those people to take that cash and move inland or someplace else, allowing the those uh, shorefront properties and bluffs to erode, not building seawalls on them, and thereby saving the beach below them. So another question that comes to mind, and I read this in the New Yorker article, no, it was National Geographic article that recently came out in July about sea level rise, which is the beach is public domain. But the bluff is not. <laughs> so as the beach keeps moving, does that mean the public just gets more and more public domain? And is that the solution right there? That That is a very interesting observation and question. Because 
in addition to treating the shoreline as non-moving and because we always thought it was permanent it is used as a fixed line for the demarcation of properties and for the application of laws as you point out on one side of the mean high tide line the water side that's public trust land and on the other side it's private well as sea level rises and that line moves inland the public's ownership of that property moves inland too. Now, if I were a property owner, I'd say, you're stealing my land. Uh, as somebody that's administering the public trust, I'm saying, no, I'm just carrying out common law that we have applied since the time of Roman Emperor Justinian. So these are all issues that we are going to have to address but it all comes back to the simple conclusion, observation, and dilemma of something that we thought was permanent is no longer permanent. So this brings up the question, anyone who lived through Hurricane Sandy or Katrina had an experience of um, having to abandon their homes to a very quick event. And I know you can't answer how fast, but how fast is going to directly impact how well we respond. People don't do too well in the middle of an emergency. They just run. Um, how do you factor time when you're trying to figure out what our responsiveness will be capable of? If you understand my question. I do understand your question. Uh, we are trying to learn from Hurricane Sandy. One of the things that happened after Hurricane Sandy, uh, we, we may remember the pictures of New Jersey Governor Chris Christie with his arm around President Obama. And what he was telling the president is FEMA was saying, we'll reimburse you for all your costs of building things back the way they were. But Christie says, we don't want to build them back the way they were. So there was a huge international effort uh, to have a design competition called Rebuild by Design. And it identified 10 important projects, brought together researchers from around the world, some of the great designers, and they are actually now building these new projects that will leave the New York, New Jersey area not the way it was before Sandy, but better prepared to deal with the next Sandy. That idea has been brought to the Bay Area, and we're doing a big design competition called Resilient by Design. That is, we're trying to lay out what the Bay Area will be facing with sea level rise and acknowledging that this is a seismically active area, so we have to think about earthquakes and also deal with the inevitable dilemma of income inequality. And we're trying to put all these together and come up with some design concepts that can be used in the Bay Area, in California, and around the world. We did have a question come in, um, and I believe it was about whether we can use funds from a particular bond to address this issue. Um, would you kind of summarize that a little bit? I, I think the question was about Measure AA, which was passed by the voters in the nine Bay Area counties last June. And uh, what it does is imposes a tax, an owner's tax of a dollar a month, 
on each landowner in the Bay Area, and that will raise half a billion dollars over the next 25 years. And that money will be used to restore wetlands in the Bay Area. Because what we have found is that wetlands are about as close to magic as you're going to get when you're dealing with flooding. Wetlands soak up flood water and they absorb wave energy. So the wider the wetland you have along the shoreline, the lower the levee can be behind it. So this measure was passed by a coalition of environmental agencies and business groups, particularly in Silicon Valley, which uh, is around the south end of the bay where there is an enormous project to take former uh, salt ponds that were used for the evaporation of uh, solar water to make salt and converting them to wetlands. That will buy us a lot of time to deal with sea level rise because we will have a vast uh, area of uh, between the North South Bay and the North Bay. It's the largest coastal wetland restoration project in the western United States. And we're now paying for this at a buck a month. Sounds like a good investment to me. Well, can you tell us just a bit more about what uh, what it means to restore a wetland? What What is the problem with the wetland that needs to be fixed and how are we going to fix it? Uh, in restoring wetlands, what we have to do more often than not is uh, recognize that in diking around San Francisco Bay, when you put the dikes in, the land behind the dikes, which was used for farming or, uh, in this case, production of salt, uh, subside over time. So if you would simply open those levees, it would become open bay. So you need to get material in there to bring it up to an intertidal elevation so that uh, wetland species can survive. Mm -hmm. And in Louisiana, that was also another issue, yes. that, that the wetlands have been eroding, and so when Katrina hit, it hit with full force, and if you had more wetlands, and those island, little mud islands out there, then you would have less of the wave force hitting you. You know, this reminds me of uh, something we've talked about before, and uh, it's worth at least commenting on. Uh, on the East Coast, there are a couple of states, <laughs> North Carolina and Florida, whose names ring bells to people who are concerned about actually doing something about sea level rise due to climate change. And there was some official insanity, as I call it, in both of those states, as far as I know, where they have basically outlawed even mention, let alone doing anything about climate change. Can you... Uh Tell us what is going on there or not going on. <laughs> well, the one I'm most familiar with is Florida. Uh, let me put it very clearly and simply. Florida is doomed. Much of southern Florida is barely above sea level now. And the underlying geology below Florida is porous limestone. So even if they build a seawall around the entire state, the water will seep in underneath and it will flood much of Florida. Uh, they are installing pumps that are pumping water uphill onto the ocean, putting uh, huge investments there. But again, in the long term, Florida is doomed. Now, 
most of the tourist attractions outside of Orlando in Florida are right along the coast. And most of the real estate development is along the coast. Those are the two largest businesses in Florida. Governor Rick Scott has looked at this situation and he has said, I guess, look, you want me to tell the tourist industry to shut down their attractions along the coast where people want to go, and you want me to tell the real estate industry, which is mostly along the coast and finally recovering after the Great Recession, to stop? I can't do that politically. So his solution is to the problem is to simply prohibit state employees using the term climate change or putting it in any official document. Now, from a short-term political perspective, that may make sense. But from a long-term perspective, it's not going to deal with the problem. History is not going to look fondly at the people who um, dodged the political bullet in order to lie to the public about their future. Well, let me just That's jump in guess. there and say how lucky we are to live in California, where yeah. we have a bipartisan support for dealing with climate change, and that is largely driven by the business leaders we have in California. We have another um, question from Alan Sinclair. Is Will doing any work with the Pentagon in light of the recent acknowledging of climate change as a significant threat to security? National security. Uh, I am not. Uh, the recent Republican budget for the Pentagon does acknowledge uh, climate change as a significant issue. Uh, it is, uh, but I have to put my tongue in my cheek when I say that this could be used as a justification for heavy defense spending if you can't find any other reason for it. Interesting. Okay. Good to, good to know that caveat. Um, and then another question from Patrick, um, he wanted to follow up and ask if there is a mode, move to use parcel Texas to construct levees rather than wetlands. Uh, using a parcel tax to construct levees rather than wetlands, I'm not familiar with any that are uh, proposed right now. Uh, the, the problem with a parcel tax is that each of us pays the same amount. I pay a buck a month, but so does the CEO of Facebook. So it may not be the most equitable way of doing things, but politically it's a, a very uh, viable way of getting broad support. The shout out to uh, the asker of that and an earlier question, Dr. Patrick Ferraro, a former colleague of mine, uh, I think, well, he taught at San Jose State. We both taught in the San, uh, Environmental Studies Department. I think he's now at University of Santa Clara. He would be an excellent guest for this show. I know he's listening, so Patrick, get in touch with us. We actually have an opening for next week, I think. There you but, go. But uh, sometimes <laughs> he's, a, he's an expert on water, all things water, and uh, you and he would get along really well. So um, what about legal recourse? Um, somebody had a question uh, about this lawsuit that San Mateo, Marin County, and Imperial Beach have issued against 37 fossil fuel companies due to sea level rise, climate-induced sea level rise. Are you familiar with that? Yes, uh, that is a lawsuit where the public agencies contend that the oil companies knew about the issue of climate change and its 
impact on a variety of things, including sea level rise. And just as the tobacco industry hid their research for a long time, uh, there is some contention that perhaps the petroleum industry was doing much the same thing. I've heard about that. I mean, the one evidence that they knew was that they've been planning to drill in places where there's no ice for a lot longer than they've been admitting there is actually climate change underway, which kind of shows they knew something or they wouldn't have built special icebreakers to get in and drill out there. That's actually a pretty exciting story to me. I think there's a lot of potential there for actually finally getting the attention of some of these frankly villainous big companies big filthy rich companies i mean who knows how far a lawsuit's going to go but they're you know the approach here is look you're wreaking havoc on the rest of the world and you're getting off scot-free so far it's time to sue their asses go for it <laughs> you know doesn't it feel sometimes that the judicial branch or any of the the judges and, and lawyers are the only thing between us sometimes and complete corporate rule over our lives. Uh, it seems to me that's the only pushback right now is coming from there and the people who are empowering them and wanting to find any tool they can to have some agency in this story, which, you know, we're not the players, we're not the ones making, we, we are contributing, of course, by what we're doing, what you're using, but the leadership is not necessarily coming from the top. So if you want to deal with the climate issue, either be a scientist or a journalist. If you want to get rich, be a lawyer. <laughs> well, that's why we're here as journalists today. Um, yeah, we could get rich here, I'm sure. Um, but I'm so glad you're here with us, and we have a couple more minutes, and so we'll give out that email because we are getting several yeah. questions. It's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com, or you can Facebook us um, at Planet Watch Radio. And this is the part of the show where we usually segue to what I call oddball stuff. But, of course, you're welcome to, you and your vast entourage in the studio here today are welcome to stay with us. And uh, maybe we'll actually go out wine tasting uh, shortly after the show. We actually have um, a live audience. You can't see them. But they're, yeah. they're sitting on couches and some of them are handing us questions. So we appreciate that not only are you watching on video, but we have a live audience yeah. of friends and family who have come, as well as our three interns. So there's probably ten people total all like bodies and chairs here in the studio. We enjoy that. Including, and maybe they'll uh, chime in on some of the oddball stuff as well. Yeah, chime in, uh, especially <laughs> Rick Gladstone over there, who's the brother-in-law of Will, who brought him to us. Uh, one Thank of the you. coolest, most interesting people I know. I met him when we were both teaching at Scotts Valley High School. Uh, but hey, I've got a little math kind of fun thing for you that's related to this. Uh, have you ever considered the question, well, exactly how long, say, on the east coast of the United States, how long is the coastline? How many miles? Well, it turns out, and this gets into fractal, the math of fractals, you know, it depends on how many wiggles and little inlets and little curves and uh, nooks and crannies you consider, and it gets longer and longer the more and more detail you put into your drawing of the coastline and in fact if you get right down to the level of connecting individual sand grains going every which way and this and that and this and that and the micro micro it turns out that the length of the coastline approaches infinity any coastline <laughs> just a dip it's a fractal thing the more detail you put in there there's detail within detail within detail this is a tr this is a mathematical finding which by the way reminds me of something else completely unrelated but hey odd ball let's talk about balls how about a bowling ball a sphere you know remove the finger holes in it but a sphere it turns out there is a 
mathematical result, some Russians, I think, came up with this, where you can literally, mathematically, carve up a full sphere, not just the, the sphere, but the, it's full. It's a full thing like a bowling ball. The whole mass is full of stuff. You can carve that up into pieces and reassemble them such that you get two full sp spheres. I have no idea how that goes, but it's it's weird, arcane mathematics. So look that one up. We're I, still I, uh, getting questions. Uh, okay, Actually, another question. Another yeah, question. I hate to Shut cut them me off. Up for a while well, this here. is from Eugene, and I believe it's the Eugene who runs our radio show in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you. I also wanted to give a quick shout out to our brand new affiliate in Taos, New Mexico. We're very excited wow, right. to welcome to the family of Planet Watch, and thank you so much we'll for running our show. Go down there and do a show on their station. KCEY. <laughs> if you're listening on KCEY, thank you so much for airing our program. We'd love to hear from you. Um, this uh, Eugene's question is, please comment on the degree of freshwater supplies affected by sea level rise, if you know. Uh, well, sea level rise will affect our water supply in that as the salt water rises, it will intrude further into the groundwater basins. Um, and uh, to the degree that communities or individuals are relying on well water or those groundwater basins, it will be a considerable problem. Uh, overall, the, the issue of water supply in California and its the effect of climate change won't be as much from saltwater intrusion as it will be to the fact that we now have in California a massive plumbing system to move water from where it falls mostly as snow in the northern and eastern part of the state to the Central Valley and to Southern California and along the coast where the people live. Uh, that system relies on the Sierra snowpack as a great big free reservoir. It stores the water as snow. As that snow melts during the spring, we collect it in reservoirs, and then we release it during the hot summer and fall months. While climate change probably won't alter the overall precipitation levels that much, less of the water will fall as snow and more as rain so our water distribution system won't work so we're going to have to reinvent that while at the same time we're trying to deal with rising sea level along the coast there's going to be a lot of work for engineers that's all we can say i got another issue here which is a segue again it's related to this but it's kind of a math puzzle for you i'm going to leave this as homework uh, that issue of National Geographic, the latest one that Rachel mentioned, uh, the July issue, has an article, and I was challenged recently at a party uh, put on by the radio station from which we were broadcasting the other day. Uh, he said, there was something in National Geographic said something about an iceberg of the size of Texas. If it dropped into the ocean, it would raise, you know, it's two miles thick, and it would raise sea level all over the world by 10 feet. That's ridiculous. That's impossible. Well... Do the math, folks. It turns out I went back and checked out that article. It says uh, a chunk of ice two times the size of Texas. So it's twice the area of Texas. And you can Google that or Wikipedia or whatever. And it's about two miles thick. And we know that uh, ice, when it floats, uh, the nine-tenths of it is below the surface. So that's how much water it's going to actually displace i.e. upward. <laughs> and then you can also look up the area of the oceans. Or you can look up the area of the Earth and multiply it by roughly three-quarters. But, so, okay, you're going from the two times the size of Texas to the area of the oceans, and you're going from two miles thick to only a 
foot level worldwide in sea rise. Does that pan out? I checked it out this morning, and uh, I leave it to you to uh, email us your answers. Okay. Very last question. Well, not a question. Uh, this week, we, we observed the 48th anniversary of what? On July 20th, the Apollo first moon landing. I thought you were going to say the summer of love. Oh, well, that, yeah, that, that was <laughs> 67. But, it's like, but anyway, uh, it also happens to be that July 20th was the uh, something else anniversary of the July 20th, 1963 total eclipse of the sun, which was the first one I ever saw in Maine on top of Cadillac Mountain in Acadia National Park. And that presages future discussion on this show about eclipses of the moon and the sun coming up soon. So keep an eye on the sky and we're out of here. Thank you so much. This everybody. has been Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan and we would like to give a special thanks to Tommy Martin, Cade Pastelnik and Caroline King, our interns. Special thanks to Eugene Beer and Columbus Ohio and now KCEY in Taos, New Mexico. If you would like to uh, subscribe to our podcast, check out zbsradio.com. You can get a regular input in your inbox and on your iPod of our program. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week. I'll be taking a brief hiatus, but I will be back. We're going to miss you. We're going to miss you, Rachel. In fact, a tip of my or I'm going to raise my glasses to our wonderful <laughs> co-host, Rachel Goodman. Bye-bye. <laughs> I'll be reporting in from the road. Thank you so much, and we will see you soon. Take care. What's more, according to Nielsen, 93% of U.S. adults, 18 and older, listen to radio every week. That's more than those watching TV or using a smartphone or a TV-connected device, an iPad, a tablet, or a PC. Brad Kelly, the managing director for Nielsen Audio, says technology trends are a bit like fashion trends. They come and go, but there's one notable exception to the technology fashion trend rule in the media world, and that is broadcast radio. AM, FM radio is the blue blazer of the media universe. Who would have believed 100 years after its debut, AM, FM radio would continue to top the charts as the medium that reaches more consumers each week than any other. Find out how KSCO and KOMY Radio can help your business. Call 831-475-1080 and ask for sales.